0: This week on the Defense Scoop Podcast from the Scoop News Group, one step closer to solving one of the toughest battlefield injuries. An extreme budget makeover may be overdue for the Pentagon and perpetuating innovation all over the Defense Department. It's Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop Podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop Podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Senate's one step closer to finishing its authorization work for the Defense Department and a solution for one of the toughest battlefield injuries is a step closer to reality. Mark Pomerleau and Brandy Vinson are reporters for Defense Scoop. Welcome to both of you. Brandy, I start with you. Traumatic brain injury is something that the Department has tried to wrap its arms around for years and years and years. What are we learning about what DARPA is going to do to work toward a solution for TBI? Welcome.
1: Thanks, Francis. Um, I got a first look at a broad agency announcement that um, DARPA will be launching later this month to essentially develop a non-invasive device that can capture data and enable health personnel to assess traumatic brain injury severity accurately um, in war environments, so in places with limited resource settings. This is something that DOD has been uh, sort of grappling with for years, as you mentioned. Um, Broadly, around 450,000 military service members were diagnosed with TBI between 2000 and 2020, including 16,000 in 2020 alone. Um, So Commander and Naval Medical Officer Jean-Paul Christian, who has seen sort of the impact of this firsthand serving in Afghanistan, uh, is now a program manager at DARPA and um, is working to really innovate around diagnosis in the field, um, not just treatment.
0: He tells you they have a whole range, he says, of medical and surgical treatments for bringing the pressure in the brain down after a traumatic brain injury. And so trying to monitor that pressure is one of the goals. What do we know about the devices that he wants to develop? Or is that really the thing here. They're still at the very beginning stages of this. And and that device development is at the very very beginning.
1: DARPA never wants to be prescriptive um, or really predict. They like to be surprised with the outcome um, of uh, the technology or what the proposers put forward. Um, What is interesting, though, is they're going to be doing clinical tests on real humans um, and anticipate to see real impacts on, um, actual humans in the course of the study. Um, as you mentioned earlier, there are a lot of treatments for bringing the pressure down, but it's measuring the pressure that on a continuous basis that really um, hasn't been achieved yet so far uh, in military settings. And so the real focus is going to be on that diagnosis and and developing and potentially using artificial intelligence, machine learning, and other technologies um, to sort of figure out how to continuously look at that pressure in the brain.
0: You note that this is a program that's going through the Small Business Innovation Research Program at uh, DARPA. Why is that of note in your view, Brandy? Why is that something that's significant as far as how DARPA is approaching this?
1: Um, I think that for, as uh, I sort of get to in my story, there there is a little bit of work on the topic, um, but there hasn't been, it hasn't come into full fruition um, for military specific settings as DARPA would like to see. But small businesses and startups, which DOD invests a billion in um, each year, are making progress there. Um, Another unique uh, sort of element of this program, I would say, is that oftentimes DARPA projects uh, run on four-year timelines. This one's going to be in two years. So they are really pushing to see um, rapid, impact and rapid development um, of this technology.
0: Mark, welcome. You're elbow deep in the Senate's version of the National Defense Authorization Act. The uh, House passed its version a week or so ago. What uh, is significant? What's noteworthy in the Senate's version that is headed to the floor now out of the uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee?
2: Sure, Francis. So, uh, you know, the the Senate passed their version uh, last month, but uh, as is typical each year, they take a few uh, weeks to actually release the bill text. So this is the first time that we've actually gotten a chance to see uh, the full text and the full language of what's actually in that bill. Um, some interesting uh, provisions in there. Um, one is actually uh, kind of codifying the term for the commander of U.S. Cyber Command um, provision in there uh, establishing a four-year term for the commander and allowing the president to nominate uh, the commander for an additional four-year term of of course the advice and consent of the uh, the senate uh, it's also requiring an annual briefing on the relationship between the National Security Agency and U.S. Cyber Command. As, as many folks are aware, um, there's what's called the dual hat arrangement in which the uh, director of the NSA and the commander of Cyber Command are actually the same person. The, 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 the two organizations are co-located. Um, it's it's uh, been a bit of contention uh, for, uh, ever since it was created many years ago, but uh, the Senate is actually asking for a specific uh, report on that. Look- looking at uh, the authorities and resources between the two organizations. Um, A few other uh, things of note, under uh, some items of special interest, which essentially are just kind of priorities that the committee lists um, and, and really just articulates um, some areas in which the committee is, is interested in and wants some more information from DoD. Uh, one in particular uh, is a comptroller general review of the cybersecurity maturity model certification reciprocity. Uh, specifically, uh, SASC said that they're concerned with the current CMMC regulations uh, that still don't clearly address CMMC compliance for commercial off-the-shelf technical and software components. Um, another interesting uh uh item of special interest uh focuses on a a multi-cloud strategy as the committee said is a positive development um and said that the department should use the latest cloud management software technology as well as enterprise-wide multi-cloud management principles that allow for applications data and other programs to be portable and interoperable between public private and edge environments while minimizing the cost and complexity of uh, unavoidable refactoring.
0: There's a lot there, Mark, regarding technology in the department. I don't recall an NDAA in the last several years that's had so much in it in that uh, respect. That report that the senators want on splitting Cyber Command and the National Security Agency, there was a period of time, I seem to remember it's been three, four years, maybe a touch longer, where that split seemed to be very close to reality. If the Senate's just asking for a report this year, that seems to me that we're no longer on the cusp of those two organizations being split. If This is still something that's being studied. It's going to be studied for a while, probably. Is that a fair assumption on my part?
2: Oh, it, it, it sure is. Um, I, as a matter of fact, uh, they're really just kind of looking for um, an assessment um, of, of the, that, that construct. And as a matter of fact, they even note kind of in, in a report that uh, accompanied the bill language, uh, the senators actually, uh, reflect on the importance of that dual hat relationship right now, saying that um, it actually has created some some positive outcomes for the nation. So uh, to to your your point, Francis, it does seem as though we might be uh, a little bit farther away than some had thought uh, from splitting the two organizations.
0: Yeah, that language is instructive. It sounds like they're leaning toward the idea of keeping it together rather than leaning toward the idea of separating the two organizations.
2: No, certainly. As a matter of fact, in recent years, officials uh, at at US Cyber Command and even the National Security Agency have, uh, in in public statements, have really spoken to to the fact that that relationship is really important and tight. Uh, signaling that, that uh, at least currently at, at the organization, that there's a sense that that they should be together. Um, you know, the, the benefit there being that uh, the intelligence gathered from the National Security Agency as an intelligence organization really helps to feed uh, the operations at U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, they, they really seem to think that that's a tight linkage and a really important uh, relationship. The, the flip side of that and the uh, uh, potential uh, drawbacks there is that The National Security Agency as a foreign intelligence organization is really charter charged with with doing foreign intelligence, um, which isn't necessarily uh, compatible with the Department of Defense's warfighting mission. So, uh, the the two sometimes are in conflict, but uh, a lot of the times uh, proponents say that 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 relationship really uh, is, is is beneficial and uh, leads to positive outcomes for the nation.
0: Mark, what will you be tracking in the next week or so that people should be watching for at DefenseScoop.com?
2: Sure. So uh, later this week, uh, the uh, there will be a change of command ceremony at 16th Air Force. That's the Air Force's uh, Information Warfare Command uh, that was created in uh, uh October of 2019 Um, it's it's kind of the first of its kind within the air force uh encompassing you know cyberspace operations uh information operations electromagnetic spectrum operations signals intelligence uh its current commander lieutenant general timothy hawk is actually leaving to be the uh, deputy commander at u.s cyber command uh and they'll be uh welcoming incoming commander lieutenant general kevin kennedy who just came from U.S. Cyber Command as its uh, director of operations.
0: Brandi, what about you? What's in the week ahead for you?
1: I've got um, an exclusive first look at a new study coming out from um, experts at uh, George Mason University's Center for Business um, for Government Contracting, really about sort of the impact that consortia have had on DOD acquisition efforts um, as well as sort of uh, the implications of other transaction authorities. Um, so excited to share some new research and uh, some of the challenges they've found uh, that they shared with me um, in their study.
0: Brandy, Vincent, Mark Pomerleau, thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Francis. Thank you.
0: you can read more about these headlines and lots of other Defense Scoop stories at fedscoop.com. The new versions of the National Defense Authorization Act are through both Armed Services Committees on Capitol Hill. Last year's version requires a review of how the Defense Department budgets. John Whitley's former Acting Secretary of the Army and former Assistant Secretary of the Army for Financial Management Comptroller, he's writing about the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system of the department for the IBM Center for the Business of Government. John, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What is the PPBE? How does it work and what does it do for DOD? Welcome.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. The PPBE process, which those who have worked in the Department of Defense in and around it are are very familiar with it. Uh, Some love it, some hate it. But it's a process by which the department allocates its resources. So you have to think about the problem that a Secretary of Defense changed faces. $773 billion was the 2023 request uh, for the Department of Defense. That's a tremendous amount of money. No secretary could could understand where each and every of those dollars goes. So what is done, what the PBB process tries to do is have a systematic process that breaks the problem out into steps to uh, allow a secretary to try and take as much control as possible of that $773 billion. It starts with the planning phase, which is where you're taking uh, enduring strategic directional type documents, like the National Defense Strategy and translating them into annual guidance for the upcoming uh, resource allocation cycle. You then move into a programming phase where you try to translate that directional guidance from planning into specific programmatic priorities uh, for the Department of Defense. You then move into budgeting, where you're going to do precise pricing and budget allocations, uh, submit to Congress, defend to Congress, get an Appropriation Act, and then you're going to execute
0: There are three reforms that you're proposing here, and I want to take each one of them in turn. The first is rebuilding strategic analysis. Rebuilding, to me, is a stronger word than reform. Am I reading too much into what you're writing, John?
3: No, I think think reading it as, as a strong statement is fair. Uh, So this is that planning phase that we talked about. We have strategic direction. We have a national defense strategy that came out in 2018, was just refreshed in 2022, providing a very dramatic change in the direction for military planning. Uh, Moving from 20 years of counterterrorism, counterinsurgency warfare, to a refocusing for the first time since the end of the Cold War on near-peer competitors like China and Russia. While we were fighting in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, they were watching us. They were investing. Uh, they've significantly modernized their militaries, and as a result, or or in in parallel to that, they significantly increased their aggression. We've seen that right now in vivid display with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We saw it in Georgia. We saw it in Crimea. China. We saw the crackdown in Hong Kong. We see increasing belligerence against Taiwan and and its neighbors in the South China Sea. So, we are now pivoting back to. Uh, a focus on near peer uh, adversaries, very different than the terrorism threat. Uh, the planning phase would be where, you know, the first step after you write that strategy, that national defense strategy saying we need to refocus, the planning phase would be, what does that mean for, for posture, for where we're positioned? What does that mean for our forces, for the types of units we have? What does that mean for modernization and the types of platforms and capabilities and equipment sets that we need? We had a process for that that we've used for, for, for some decades. Uh, it 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 had certain challenges with it. It was very slow. It was very labor intensive. Uh, we ended that process about 10, 10 or so years ago. That was probably done for good reasons. The challenge is we never rebuilt it. We lived along for those 10 years, really continuing that counterterrorism fight. We are continuing what we were already doing. Okay. Now we get faced with this dramatic realignment, redirection And we don't have the analytic processes in place to support and tell us what it really means and how to translate that into programs and budgets.
0: You write in your work, to be successful, the planning phase is both an analytic capability and a decision-making process. How decisive can one be both at this phase in this PPBE process and in an environment where by the time you have a finished product, the world may have changed dramatically in ways that you couldn't foresee, i.e. Ukraine?
3: No, no, that's certainly a challenge. But what you're trying to do is you're not trying to, in the planning phase, make uh, very specific, concrete decisions. I'm going to prioritize hypersonic missiles at this range uh, over mid-range missiles at this range by the tune of you know hundred million dollars for this one and only fifty million dollars for that one. That's that's a decision you can make much later in the process when you're getting in the programming, when you're getting the budget. We're talking about in planning. We're talking about what is the prioritization of Hypersonic long-range missiles. What do we need to think about? What are the various threats we need to think about in the Pacific theater? Uh, obviously, China taking Taiwan is one. China moving into the South China Sea is another. North Korea and the North Koreans pushing into South Korea would be another. Uh, the most recent shooting skirmish in the region was was between India and China. So, planning—you're really trying to understand that threat environment. You're trying to translate it into directional guidance for for programs, capabilities, posture,
0: forces, etc. All right, your second item, I hear the Defense Industrial Base clapping as they're reading this, John. Um, you title it, Improving Agility and Allocating Resources, and you write, the PPBE system is not considered fast or agile enough in its current form to support DOD capability development at the current pace of technological advancement set by American industry. That Sounds to me like you're saying industry can go a lot faster than the department can buy the stuff that industry can make. Is the delta, in your view, closing or is it continuing to widen or neutral?
3: I think it's too early to tell. I, we've made significant changes. Uh, we had significant changes to the acquisition process over the last few years. Uh, we had this PPB commission, which my paper is in reaction to. Uh, looking at the the resource allocation process. We have made a lot of changes within the Department of Defense. They are certainly good changes moving in the right direction. Whether or not they've moved the needle is I think what we don't know yet. We have uh, decentralized acquisition and pushed it down into lower parts of the organization. We have increased authorities or expanded existing authorities, uh, other transaction authorities and things like that to try and create a more nimble environment, uh, less uh, burdened by the federal acquisition regulations that have driven some of the the slowness in the past. So we have done a lot. Whether or not it's moving the needle, I don't think we have the data to say.
0: You write uh, specifically addressing technology, DOD must adopt modern business practices like as a service purchasing of technology and digital transformation. The decision makers that I've talked to over the last 15 years in the Pentagon are asking for that all the time the struggle i think comes from the confidence on capitol hill to be able to do that and you address that in this point too changes in uh, the way that the congress appropriates money to the department john
3: yes but i would say we are making progress in those two areas first as a service purchasing right that that makes people nervous right people think and if you're from the defense space you know boeing tanker lease right that's that's a that is something that that scares people in the defense space So I think renting things, leasing things uh, uh, has had to overcome a significant hurdle and burden because of that. But what we're talking about with as a service purchasing is different than taking a generic capability and either buying it or leasing it. We're talking about now capabilities where DOD is not the primary investor in research and development. We're talking about a broad private sector when we think about autonomy, when we think about AI, when we think about um, uh, uh, things that are going on in cyber and cloud. DoD is only one small piece of that overall investment portfolio. So when we talk about as a service purchasing now, we're talking about something very different than leasing tankers 20 years ago. We're talking about tapping into Uh, a research and investment uh, uh, funding stream that's much larger than DOD by itself. So that's on digital transformation. uh, There are uh, lots of exciting things going on there. I I use helicopters as an example. We have, I I think you almost have a story of progression. You have Blackhawk. I don't mean this pejoratively, a legacy platform, right? A historically uh, produced platform by analog processes. The Army is now going back and And building a digital twin to now match the Blackhawk to improve operations, sustainment of the Blackhawk. Then you go to CH53K. We used digital transformation in incremental ways in there on the production process for, say, torquing fasteners or uh, in the design phase where we had a problem with gas re-ingestion and had to sort out a problem with the engines. And then you go to future vertical lift, the, uh, the next generation of helicopters that the Army is, is investing in for modernization. And you're starting with a digital, uh, you're starting with digital design up front. And then you're trying to build an unbroken digital thread all the way through to the manufacturing process once we get there uh, for future vertical lift. So I would say uh, we have been talking about it. Progress is probably not as slow as you or I or others might want, but there is progress being
0: made. All right. The third item that you're writing about as far as reforming the PPBE system is using realized performance data. Uh, the data curation problem in the department, uh, people talk to me all the time uh, about how does one know that one is using the right data to make these decisions?
3: Well, no, that's a, uh, uh, always a challenge. I, I'm an economist by training, so I probably have my own unique uh, or or perhaps uh, slightly different views on these things. But, you know, a researcher, and analyst always has to take ownership of the data and always has to dig deep enough to know that the data they're using uh, is correct. So so I'm not uh, entirely sympathetic to people who want data sitting on the shelf and say uh, it's perfectly curated, it's perfectly accurate, and I can now use it uh, for Any analyst has to take ownership of the data. So I'm I'm less sympathetic uh, uh, to that uh, complaint in general. But I think the deeper point that I try to make is, uh, you know, fortunately wars don't happen very often, right? We go to war about every 20 to 25 years. So when we're trying to make resource allocation decisions, we don't have uh, actual data on this capability versus that capability and going against a, a particular type of threat. Uh, so we do a lot of modeling and simulation, and, and some of us for, and it's forced on us for that reason. So I, I'm not opposed uh, to modeling and simulation. Where I think DOD's gone wrong is DOD relies on it now for everything, uh, and is very uh, not does not have the skill sets, does not have the processes, and does not have the discipline to to try to look at to make greater use of realized performance data when it is available.
0: Uh, you close this uh, by addressing the issue that the de- uh, department's been wrestling with for years and years and years. You write with annual full scope financial statement audits well underway. The pieces are now in place for major improvement. What's the major improvement that the department should anticipate that if they get to that, they will have success in uh, in in the use of data, John?
3: So so I would say uh, that the audits are uh a necessary but not sufficient condition right what they are doing is that lots of people have lots of different views on the audit i came away with the view, you know a big part of the audit is just saying is your data correct is your inventory data of your systems correct is your inventory data of your people and their skill sets correct is your financial data on what transactions and what parts you're buying correct so uh, a large part of the financial statement audit is validating DOD data. That gives you, that gets to your point about how do you know if you have good data or not? Uh, the audit will, will, a clean audit opinion, a modified, unmodified audit opinion will get us to the point where we have confidence in the data. The next step then is using the data.
0: John Whitley, terrific information here. Very well done. And I thank you for coming on to talk with me about it today.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: This great. You can find a link to John's piece in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Defense Scoop Podcast. The lineup for Defense Talks is filling in. The DISA Director, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner will be one of the headliners. You can see the rest of the lineup and register for Defense Talks September 15th at the Ritz Carlton in Pentagon City through the link in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. The newest portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit is energy. DIU's looking for answers from industry to some of the department's toughest energy problems. Michael Brown's the director of the Defense Innovation Unit. In part one of this conversation with Defense Scoop's Brandy Vincent, he says DIU has solicitations up now in that area.
4: So, quite a few projects on energy resilience. Uh, what can we do that uh, uh, takes what the commercial sector is doing to uh, improve uh, energy conservation, new types of fuels, those type of things, and, uh, and try to and incorporate that into the military. For example, right now we're converting a lot of the army vehicles and trucks to be hybrids because we found that 80% of the time that they're in use, they're idling somewhere, they're not going somewhere, keeping someone cool or warm. Uh, and that of course, waste fuel, uh, creates a signature that adversaries can detect So we're busy involved. That's called tactical vehicle hybridization, um, which is kind of an interesting uh, use, you know, it's a commercial technology. We've had hybrids in the commercial trucking fleet world for decades now, but now bringing that to the military and you might know the military is the world's largest consumer of energy.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because it also adds, though, having to build the infrastructure to keep them charged and so on and so forth, right? So there's many components there for technology. That's
4: exactly right. The, the, these uh, hybrid vehicles that we're uh, creating right now are the type that uh, will not need the charging stations. So um, they're not they're not fully electric. I think that's coming in the future also.
1: That's awesome. Sort of sticking with that line for a little bit, um, What are some specific technologies beyond energy that you think could be near-term game changers that will have like a huge impact on modern and future warfare? The first that comes to mind for me is what we've seen with drones in Ukraine, but talk to me a little bit about um, what your view on that is.
4: Certainly autonomy, the interaction between autonomy and artificial intelligence as these drones become smarter, they're able to work in teams. I think that's gonna be a game changer going forward. You're already seeing the use of uh, autonomy in Ukraine being used to you know, pretty damaging effect by the Ukrainians against the Russians here. I'll point to another one that might not be as obvious and that's uh, different sensors in space uh, to pr- provide satellite imagery. So we started working five years ago with some suppliers of something called synthetic aperture radar. So we're used to satellite images that are optical. We're looking at pictures uh, with very, uh, uh, you know, high-tech cameras. But now it's possible to get a radar image, and that way you can see through clouds and you can see at night. And this has been a game changer in Ukraine uh, because those uh, images have allowed us to not only see closer to real time, but Because it's commercial technology, it's been shared with partners and allies, Ukrainians on the ground to give them a tactical advantage. But also think about how the war unfolded where the US Intelligence Committee, I'm sorry, US Intelligence Community was able to predict what was gonna happen. Frankly, flying in the face of what some thought uh, to say, no, Putin is amassing forces and he's going to invade. And we were able to not only make that prediction, but share the pictures uh, with, uh, with the world, not only with allies and partners, but with the press. So we were all able to watch this unfold through whatever your, you know, favorite media outlet was. Uh, and that's still being used today to provide uh, very good, uh, intelligence on where the Russian forces are, where are they amassing, you know, when they take a pause, are they retreating or are they gathering more forces? And, uh, we've, combine that with some artificial intelligence to actually do battlefield assessments. So we started working a couple of uh, years ago by using this SARS synthetic aperture radar imagery and saying we could develop algorithms that would tell us uh, in the event of a natural disaster, what is the damage to the infrastructure after we've had a big fire? You know, I live in California, so California wildfires are always on my mind. Uh, And we could give first responders a view of which roads were damaged or impassable. What are the structures that now are gone? We can use that same technology and R to provide that to Ukraine, so they can do battlefield damage assessment as soon as missiles are flying in the air. So they uh, Ukrainians can get a color-coded view using commercial technology of what is the damage that's just occurred because uh, you know these missiles have flown. So. An example of kind of a game-changing technology in terms of the closer to real-time situational awareness that that we're able to give uh, Ukrainians something that DIU's worked on, and we brought in a number of the vendors that are now on contract uh, to the U.S. military, providing that that imagery
1: that's great and so um, I was gonna ask you if DIU has been directly involved in the adoption of technologies related to Russia and Ukraine sounds like the yeah. yes do you want to talk just a little bit more about what your role kind of was there
4: yeah as soon as uh, we saw the uh, uh, you know the events unfold and we saw the invasion was happening uh, the u.s. getting involved to help NATO uh, uh, allies uh, we uh, immediately made the Commercial technologies that we thought could be useful, uh, you know, highlighted those so that they would be able to put on the security assistance lists uh, that are provided to Ukraine and and make sure that uh, European command, the force that's working most closely with NATO uh, would have access to those. Beautiful thing about that, again, commercial technologies that can be shared freely with partners and allies, no classification issues that have to be sorted through to see who can we share that with. And again, because it's commercial technology, it can be scaled up rather quickly. So we were able to scale up with a number of vendors that we'd qualified so they could provide uh, assistance in much higher quantities much sooner than you might have with some of the more specialized gear. And so we feel like the combination of the commercial satellite imagery, uh, which is now being provided through the National Reconnaissance Office, the NRO, uh, uh, secure communications capability uh, we've all seen the Russian generals making mistakes using their cell phones and not realizing those are geolocator devices. So providing uh, you know secure communications capability. Drones, as you mentioned, being used to incredible effect here, not just the small drones that we worked on at DIU, but some of the other drones that have been used to, you know, um, send, uh, you know, unfriendly uh, uh, missiles over to, to Russian tanks and trucks and, and things like that. So those are the technologies that we've worked on that are being used in Ukraine.
1: Oh wow! Thank you for sharing it, that. Is there? It, anything-
4: it's a highlight to how important commercial technology is to the future of warfighting. Uh, a question you just asked about. I think we're seeing that change in front of our eyes in Ukraine. Commercial technology is going to be more important and used in some new and different ways, just as we talked about.
1: So also, what does that in turn say about? Um- DIU and its sort of significance where it fits to the government there.
4: Yeah, I think it's uh, underscoring how important the mission of DIU is. As we think about uh, warfare evolving over the next couple of decades, there's going to be more and more of these commercial technologies that are going to be applied in warfare. Uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, my boss, uh, has come up with 14 technologies that she believes are critical for national security. 11 of those 14 are being led by the commercial sector, AI, autonomy, uh, the commercial satellite imagery, what's happening in space, cyber. So th- for these technologies, the military really needs a way to access what's happening uh, outside, which is why DIU was set up, and then a way to be able to adopt those capabilities uh, in a way that's different than what we've done with an aircraft carrier or a fighter aircraft. So we need to be aware of those technologies, we need to be uh, evaluating them on a much more frequent basis because new technologies in these areas are coming out every year, every 18 months. So we've got to be assessing and then finding a way to field them so much more quickly than we've done with traditional uh, military gear. So we've advocated for something we've a fast follower strategy where the military isn't leading in the development of a technology like hypersonics or uh, laser Uh, weapons-directed, energy weapons. We need to be fast following what the commercial market is doing in areas like drones or commercial satellite imagery and really have an alternative process that that we've outlined uh, that would allow the military to more quickly assess and field those technologies.
1: Absolutely. When we're speaking about sort of um, how important commercial technologies will be to the future of warfare, um, I can't help but think about sort of previous frustrations you've spoken of, of like a lack of funding for DIU. So like when we see this trend happening, why do you think uh, DIU's funding has been sort of slashed over the years? And um, what is kind of your comment on that in the bigger picture of where warfare is heading with
4: technology? I say two different uh, trends that we're talking about. One is recognizing that these commercial capabilities are gonna be needed on an ongoing basis, if not an increasing basis. So we need to move from a concept the military calls programs of record where we have a specific requirement, choose a vendor and field that technology for 30 or 40 years. That's what we do with fighter aircraft. So with commercial technology, we need a different process. Uh, one, we don't need to study and come up with requirements or what is the design for a decade, which is typically what we do with new capabilities the, where the military's in the lead. We have to more quickly assess that technology, figure out where it's going to be bought. That's one of the keys with commercial satellite imagery and other commercial technologies. We have to know where that's going to be bought. These technologies were not developed for a specific service. It wasn't like, okay, new ship that's going to Navy. Who should be buying that? In the case of commercial satellite imagery, it was a question, was it Air Force? Was it Space Force? Was it the NRO? Was it the NGA? So you have to decide where that center of excellence is going to be, have the people who can assess that, and then develop a process that works in a very fast cycle, basically fielding every 12 to 18 months when new commercial technology is available. That's so different than what we do with a fighter aircraft, uh, which we might only field a new one every uh, decade or two, uh, that we really need a, a parallel process. So I call that capabilities of record versus a program of record. It's not a specific program. So we would probably ask Congress to fund those capabilities, knowing we're gonna need that on an ongoing basis. That's a little bit separate from the DIU budget, which uh, has had tremendous support from the Congress uh, for the four years that I've uh, been leading DIU, except for this past fiscal year. And I'd say it's just a function of DIU being so small within the Defense Department, it didn't have the, the focus with the new administration to say, okay, we've got to change what was in the, the uh, what's called the, the FIDEP, the, extended period of of budgeting that's done because they're done uh, two or three years in advance of the year you're spending money.
1: So do you think that sort of lack of funding for DIU could be a trend that keeps going or um, sort of in coming years do you think it'll switch with the what we're seeing with commercial technologies for defense?
4: I think it will switch. I think uh, we've given some visibility to the fact that uh, the budget's gone down at a time when commercial technology is ever more important. And uh, frankly, the the combatant commanders, the the warfighters are asking for more commercial technology because it can be deployed so much more quickly. We had a a recent hearing from the House Armed Services Committee where there was tremendous support for what can we do to increase the activity that DIU is undertaking. So I think there's going to be enough visibility for this that it will get corrected.
1: This gets us sort of the topic of, in your view and what you've seen over these last few years, um, what does, what else, I should say, because you've gotten into it a little bit, does DOD need to do to better insert and adopt commercial tech? Where do you see it lagging? And sort of big picture, what's your biggest concerns around the future of U.S. national security with that in mind?
4: So there's two things that we've called for that are related. One is, uh, the idea that I've worked on with uh, Admiral Lawrence Selby, who leads the uh, Office of Naval Research, that we basically need to create a hedge to our traditional large weapons platforms. Why? Because our adversaries, in some cases, China has stolen some of the designs for our major weapons platforms. I'm particularly thinking about aircraft. Uh, And certainly all our adversaries have had a chance to study our warfighting concepts, what the military calls techniques, tactics, procedures how we go to war with the equipment that we have because the us has been so involved globally in quite a few conflicts our adversaries have studied carefully how we go to war just the way we're studying what the russians are doing in ukraine right now so there's no surprise in that so i feel like we need a hedge uh, to be able to bring an element of surprise that's brought by commercial capabilities again we talked about some of these with ukraine the the amount of sensors that are in space, it's going beyond synthetic aperture radar to now uh, infrared and radio frequency. So we're gonna get an entire spectrum of different sensors from space which will increase our situational awareness. We talked about uh, small drones um, uh, that are now being extended to be autonomous vehicles that are in the air, uh, on the surface uh, and underwater. So imagine that uh, in a conflict in the Pacific where you can cover the vast distances there with some autonomous capability. And of course, AI to be able to have us apply uh, you know, the techniques of pulling these sensors together, get a common operating picture and make better decisions and make them faster. So these commercial technologies are going to be in- increasingly important uh, on their own in combination because you can provide new capabilities as they're experimented with and combined and to provide an element of surprise and something new we're bringing to the fight relative to the large platforms, which we will always need to feel. As we think about that as an important element of what we're doing to improve our overall capability, we need a way to ingest those. And that's where it comes back to what we talked about a moment ago, the fast follower strategy. Okay, they're on a completely different uh, cycle time than our large platforms. How are we going to adapt our processes within the military so that we're evaluating them as soon as they come out? We're not introducing a a delay to get those to our warfighters. And we have a way to procure those. You can use some of the acquisition methods DIU has pioneered. We invented something called the commercial solutions opening. It leverages other transaction authority that Congress has given the Defense Department. So that's an acquisition technique we use. Now we need to, uh, in addition to that, have more flexible budgeting, what I talked about with the capabilities of record. So, this combination of requirements, acquisition, and budgeting as a whole system uh, needs to be reimagined for commercial technology because it's on s- such a much faster cycle. So, the combination of that hedging of the cap- large platforms with commercial capabilities, experimenting, bringing new concepts uh, to warfighters, and then being able to ingest that capability quickly using speed as an element of uh, competition is going to be something that uh, uh, we need to improve upon. And, And those are the ideas that we put forward.
0: Mike Brown, the outgoing director of the Defense Innovation Unit with Defense Scoop's Brandy Vincent. You can read more in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. And you can listen to part two of that conversation on next week's episode. The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop podcast, back next Wednesday with part two of the conversation with Mike Brown at DIU. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.